everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. You all familiar with the uh, computer company Dell? Does that ring a bell? Uh, it's gone through some, some business ups and downs. I'm not sure where it stands in 2019. But there was a time in the late 90s, early 2000s, where Dell was the largest consumer PC seller on the market. And Dell did something very interesting, very counterintuitive. Most companies like to have big warehouses. You know, they feel safe with lots of inventory, large shelves for their, you know, massive warehouses, always ready for the next order, always in stock to meet customer demands. Dell took a very different approach. In fact, they were uh, vehemently opposed to that warehouse mentality. In the technology business, you know this, that uh, product literally rots in value when they're on the shelf. And so since Dell didn't want their best resources kept on the shelf, they only kept two hours worth of inventory, which means that if you ordered a PC on Dell.com, the parts did not arrive to Dell until two hours before that computer was shipped to you. See, Dell wanted their resources out there on the street, not in the warehouse where the resources kind of gather dust and, and produce no impact. And it made me think of some churches who are betting their future on the warehouse approach. A lot of churches, you know, build big warehouses and shelve a bunch of Christians in fact, notice how pews and rows of chairs kind of suspiciously look like shelves. And they design attractive programs to retain people. Um, they, they keep precise records of how much inventory, i.e. people, uh, are on the shelves. They brag about uh, the size of their warehouse to other warehouse managers. Folks, I want to tell you that Jesus has left the warehouse and he wants us to follow him out there, on the street, in the office, in the rinks, in the cul-de-sacs, in the clubs, in the, in the teams. Um, and let me say something that may even be controversial to some. I want us to even be very careful that we as a church would actually say no to some good ministry opportunities uh, say no to some good programs, some good events, so that we have more time to leave the building and live the mission with Jesus out there. Uh, the scripture paints this picture that we are God's ambassadors in this culture. Here's what 2 Corinthians says. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And the, the apostle Peter even describes us as aliens. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain 
from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such God lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. The first um, challenge that Peter gives us is to live a, a God life, a holy life, a righteous life, a pure life. But the second part of that challenge is equally important. Live a holy life, a pure life, a God life among those who don't know God, among them, not removed from them, not against them, not um, among them, among them. Too many Christians have believed I think a lie that holiness is separation from sinners instead of separation from sin. One of uh, M. Night Shyamalan's lesser-known films is, is one called The Village. You ever see The Village? It's some spoiler alerts, okay? But 15 years ago, I mean, what, you know, give me a break. In, in The Village, there's this group of people who are disgusted with the culture, and so each of them has been hurt by the world, so they decide to create their own village deep in the woods, and they, they never leave. They, recreation, education, the totality of their lives is self-contained within this village. And don't you feel like many Christians want to live in a village of their own making? They, they seek jobs with other Christians. They place their kids in Christian Little League and the only fellowship with other believers. And they enjoy Christian radio and they go to the Christian fitness club and they sip Christian coffee at Christian coffee houses and, and they lay their heads on their pillows at night thanking God that they lived another day unscathed by the world. From what I can tell as I read scripture though, village life is not really Christian life. It actually seems to be the antithesis of, of the life that Jesus lived. And sometimes, quite frankly, the church has been the enemy of Jesus' mission as church programming can dominate our schedules to the point that there's just no time or energy left to do the mission out there, to live as, as redemptive ambassadors uh, for the kingdom of God. You know, the church is one of the few organizations in the world that does not exist for the benefit of its members. Think about that. Here's a quote from Louis Palau, that the church is like manure. Pile it together and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out and it enriches the world. Now here's what I see happening in a lot of churches. We gather at the building and we learn how to be good, Right? Being good is defined by what we avoid in the world. And, and we're holy because of what we don't participate in. You know, we live decent lives in, in decent homes, have decent jobs, raise decent families. We're decent church members. But we have little or no impact on the world than when before we were saved. Now, here's what I believe is closer to the Jesus model Instead of Christians isolating, learning to be good, Christ followers propel themselves into the world to risk their lives for the sake of others. Now, now the world is our focus, and we gauge success in the church not on the hundreds or thousands that we get into the church, but on the hundreds or thousands who are sent 
from our church to join Jesus in his mission in the world to impact the community, to plant gospel seeds, to make disciples. So if that is closer to the Jesus disciple-making model, you know, we should never think that that can be accomplished in one service at 10 o'clock once a week in one place led by one or two teachers. Like being ambassadors is something that's taking place in multiple times every week in multiple locations by an army of men and women and teenagers sharing, showing, serving, and teaching Christ. It's this army called the church and they've got a mission, not to save the world, but to announce the saving work of Christ for the salvation of the world. Our message, you know, isn't come to church. It's come to Christ. And before this starts to sound like an anti-church rant, which it certainly is not, remember the church is actually the people, right? Like, here's the church, and here's the steeple, and then... (laughs) And here's the people, right? Um, this address, 1140 Gorham Street, is not the church. You know this, right? You are the church. You remember your marching orders at the end of every Sunday? Go be the church. Well, now in some of y'all's lifetime, including my own, um, you have seen uh, shifts in what it means to be a growing, disciple-making church. 60 years ago... It was all about Sunday school. You had to have Sunday school. Or maybe it was partnering with uh, Billy Graham in a, in a, a tent-type revival evangelist meeting, uh, hosting that. Maybe in the 70s, it was about a bus ministry. How many of you were part of a bus ministry ever? I was, yeah, in Hamilton. Uh, in, the, in the late 80s and, and 90s, it was called seeker-sensitive movement, and it yielded great fruitfulness. Knack made magazine headlines for being one of the first churches in Canada to adopt that strategy, and it was very fruitful. Um, Later, you know, it's become the emerging church and missional church and house churches. And honestly, like, they all were effective for a time. Today, people are realizing that God is using all different kinds of methods and models to reach different kinds of people. I mean, A liturgical, traditional approach can be effective, as long as God is using it to reach uh, its community effectively. In fact, in North America, the the come and see, invitational approach, you know, come to my church, is still very effective in many contexts. But here's my point. No one, or almost no one, just is showing up at church unannounced anymore. Not in not in 2019, and not in Canada. But when it's combined with authentic, relational approaches, it's still very effective. In fact, how many are here in church ultimately because someone invited you? Just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, our methodology is going to change, won't it? Like, you have seen several different trends in your lifetime. Can you believe that uh, cold calling, door-to-door evangelism was an effective thing years ago? Uh, it was, but, but the culture has changed, and man, that just ain't going to fly today. 
Like, not in Canada. I'll tell you, when our doorbell rings, we, like, uh, hide under the cushions and <laughs> draw straws about who has to answer the door. Chances are somebody's trying to sell you something. But the principle of being incarnational, I mean, that's not a trend. That's a Jesus principle. Well, what does incarnation mean? We hear it at Christmas all the time, the incarnation. It's, a, it's the theological doctrine uh, that the perfect divine God takes on flesh and blood, takes on human limitations. He joins in person the very people that he created. And the practical application of that, I think, is summed up in the, in the message translation of, of John chapter 1, where it says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, you know? He, he came to his own people, but his own people didn't want him, or his own people received him not. He came to the filth and the sin and the brokenness and lived with us and neighbored us and loved us. Now, we aren't Jesus, and sometimes what we're doing, in fact, is bringing our own filth and brokenness to the neighborhood, but we're also bringing a ray of light. We're bringing Jesus, the, the, the hope of glory, wherever we go because he dwells within us as believers. So we incarnate ourselves with real people and real situations and we, we love them and we live with them and we have authentic relationships with them. That's a glimpse of what the incarnation is like. Now, hear me on this. This is super important. Relationship is not a tool or a trick, or a strategy to get them into church, okay? Authentic relationship is the natural result of an incarnational life. We are a people who are built for relationship. God wired us that way, not to sell people on anything, but to, to love. And in the natural course of doing life together, spiritual things are going to come up. I guarantee you they will. Not just because it's naturally wired in us as Christ followers, but because God has wired a longing for spiritual things in all people. So, can I just take the pressure off you right now? Like, I'm, I'm going to actually make a point of asking you to stop trying to be evangelistic in whatever cliched way that you're, you're thinking. It is a loaded word filled with all kinds of guilt and baggage. And if you were raised in the church, there's a lot of misconceptions and, and shame feelings about, you know, evangelism. A lot of Christians look at it as a directive to kind of unnaturally uh, wedge Jesus into every conversation you have. It's like, I, I don't know anybody who's a multi-level marketer. Okay, so I'm just let, so I, no offense to anybody, but do you ever get the feeling sometimes that like, um, am I a friend with you because I'm your friend or because uh, you want to sell me some Amway? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like there's, a, there's a strings attached to this. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm going to ask you this though, that you would intentionally publicly live out a questionable life. And what do I mean by that? A questionable life. Well, it's the kind of life that causes other people to question you 
about it. Like, why are you living so differently? What, why did you make that decision when the rest of the culture seems to be making different choices? Why are you spending your money in such a different way? If you live out a kingdom life, you'll have plenty of opportunities to share different aspects of Christ with people. The difference is that instead of having to hound and harass people, I believe people will be drawn to you out of curiosity and openness. Uh, we, we make the assumption that everybody needs to be a natural evangelist, like a, a spiritual gifted evangelist. And I, I know there are some in our church, I think, I think Kelly might be, I think Brittany might be, I think new Christian Rebecca might be an evangelist, yeah. Uh, Andrew Hamilton is definitely evangelist. Like he, so he'll he'll be like making um, uh, driveways, sealing driveways and stuff, and working with his son Mac, and he'll just get in a conversation with somebody, and next thing you know, he's like praying with somebody. Like it just happens naturally. I don't have that. Andrew has that. Now poor Mac ends up having to do the driveway by himself, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm, right? It's like, yeah, it's great that he's, you know, saving somebody, but, like, it's hot out, Dad. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that you are a naturally gifted evangelist. I think living a questionable life is in little things. I want to tell you a story. I've not asked this person's permission, so I'm not going to use names. But I ran into somebody at the car wash, and um, I was getting a car, you know, the nice kind, where they go in the side and vacuum and everything. And uh, I asked, what are you doing here? And they were like, I'm here to apologize. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I, uh, I had the car go through, and, uh, and then my brakes didn't work immediately after. And so I figured they did something, and so I kind of reamed out the manager I find out later from my mechanic that the brake line was so thin that just the, the underwash you know, must have broken it. So I'm here to apologize. I was like, that's, that's a questionable life. I mean, we all resonate with the person who sort of uh, complains, but then to do the right thing and come back and apologize, I thought, that's a kingdom life. Um, what if we start looking for ways to, to bring tangible slices of heaven down to earth and, and continue to do this until those we're reaching out to acknowledge that our ways are actually good news? Um, if you're truly living the good news, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to explain the hope that lies within you. And maybe instead of leading off with words about the gospel to virtual strangers. Maybe instead we demonstrate and live acts of the good news to those who we're building authentic relationships with. So, leading a questionable life, what might that look like? Well, um, it's an approach that literally transformed the Roman Empire uh, we know about the evangelists, the apologists like uh, Peter and Paul who were proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. Hundreds, thousands were assimilating in, into 
uh, part of society, living out questionable lives that evoked curiosity about the Christian message. They devoted themselves, you know this, first century, second century church, to sacrificial acts of kindness. They loved their enemies. They forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor. They fed the hungry. Um, In the brutality of life under Roman rule, they were the most stunningly different people anyone had ever seen. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Their influence was so surprising that in the fourth century, the emperor Julian feared they might take over the empire. Uh, He referred to Christians as the Galileans, and he called Christianity atheism, ironically, because of their denial of the existence of, of many gods. And, uh, and he believed that their religion was a sickness. And he penned this directive. This is from the fourth century to his officials. Here's what he said. When it, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, those are Christian priests, then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And they have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for such practices. For just as those who entice children with cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them, and then when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves, by the same method, I say, the Galileans also begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names, and the result is that they have led very many into atheism, i.e. Christianity. He doesn't sound real thrilled with um, Christianity. Julian was concerned that these Christian acts of hospitality and generosity were winning too many of his subjects, and he decided to launch, launch an offensive of his own against them, And here's what he did. He mobilized his officials and his pagan priests to outlove the Christians. Okay, we're going to outlove the Christians. And he decreed that a system of food distribution and of um, he started hostels to be built for poor travelers. And here's here's what he wrote later. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done much to increase atheism? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, for it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Any predictions how uh, Julian's new social program fared? Yeah, not well. Uh, And not surprisingly, it just failed. He couldn't motivate pagan priests to care that much for the poor. He failed to realize that Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit of love. They were motivated by, by grace. The message that they shared, that God love the whole world was patently absurd to the average Roman. The pagan gods didn't care a lick for humankind. And yet, in this miserable world of the Roman Empire, the Christians not only proclaimed 
the mercy of God, but they also demonstrated it. They fed the poor. They welcomed everyone. They, um, regardless of status, regardless of slave or slave owner, they fellowshiped with everyone, irrespective of ethnicity or gender. And so their conduct raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Roman. And I think this is what Paul's referring to in Titus 2 when he gives us this list of, of countercultural directives. And then he says in chapter 2, I like how the old-timey King James Version puts it, is it's what it means to adorn the gospel. Or in more contemporary language, to make the gospel attractive. Um, what does it look like for us to adorn the gospel, to, to live a questionable life, a life of intrigue, a life that evokes curiosity in others to the point where they might even initiate a conversation about what makes us different? I think, first of all, we have to change our old evangelistic paradigm and recognize that we are talking more about habits than events. We're talking more about rhythms of life than about campaigns. Talking more about a lifestyle change than some crusade. And and there's there's nothing inherently wrong with, say, a, a 40 days of purpose campaign or an evangelistic event or a series like this. Um, but look at what the Apostle James says. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you Sorry, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And you know, even in the secular world, the psychiatrist Carl Jung says, you are what you do, not what you'll say you'll do. And take it a step further, even Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. So transfer that idea to faith. Faith is more than just a single act, a single choice. It's even more than a a belief system. It's a habit. It is what we um, foster, a set of habits that not only shape our values and belief, but become winsome and intriguing to our community. And now most of us um, are not gifted evangelists. God hasn't gifted everybody that way. But all of us can foster habits in our life that that draw out the lives of unbelievers and and invite the kinds of questions that lead to, to us sharing good news. You know, when our lives become questionable, our, our neighbors invite us to proclaim God. And if the church grows as a result, so be it. But that's not the goal in and of itself. So if our only habits as Christians are going to church and attending meetings, man, they're not going to connect us with unbelievers. And it's not going to invite their curiosity about our faith. So the trick is to develop habits that not only unite us as believers, but, but propel us into the lives of others. So I, I want to challenge us this morning. I want to challenge me this morning to foster what I'll call some incarnational habits, habits that will connect us together, that we will celebrate together, um, that, that will keep on the front burner 
of this church. And it's summed up in a little acronym I'll call BELLS. You can find it in your bulletin. Oh, please, pastor, another acronym, another alliteration. Lord, help us all. Well, <laughs> hear me out on this, because these, these are not burdensome. I suspect some of you are doing this already in your life. These are not a major time commitment, but let's just go through this. B, begin with prayer. How many know that God is still answering prayers in 2019? Amen. How many know that everything of real, eternal significance begins with prayer? How many know that the child or friend or family member that you are praying for, for their salvation, still deeply moves the heart of God? And he is hearing you, and he is working in their life. Um, It starts with an intentionality, though, to be faithfully, regularly praying for those who you would like to see come to a saving relationship with Christ. In fact, as a response, I'm going to ask you to corporately share those names as as an intentional act of response. I'd I'd like all of us to write those names over there. And it may be a name that you don't want to publicly share for various reasons. In fact, I have somebody who I'm going to write down at the end of this service, and I I would be a little embarrassed if they walked in and saw that they were centered out in that way. So I'm going to use my chicken scratch family doctor handwriting, and I'll know who it is, and God will know who it is. Um, You can do the same. You can use initials or code Um, But every time we walk in here, uh, I'd like us, at least for a season in our church, to be reminded of the one or two or five people that you have agreed to intentionally, faithfully pray for. And weekly, as a church, we are going to corporately, collectively pray for those people, trust God for their salvation. Here's a little thought experiment for you. What if Jesus were to say to us, I'm going to answer every prayer that you prayed last week? Would anything have been answered? More to the point, would there be any new people in the kingdom because of our prayers? B, begin with prayer. E, eat with unbelievers. What is it about breaking bread with someone that unites us a little bit more, like that lowers our walls, that allows more vulnerability, bonds us with each other. I don't know why that is. I just believe God has wired us that way. You know, we look at our leader, Jesus, who was accused of being a a drunk and a glutton. He was the one eating with sinners. He was building relationships over a meal. The Christian experience has always been about eating, eating sacramentally, you know, at the communion table, eating as an expression of fellowship, um, but also eating missionally, incarnationally, you know, as an expression of our love to all. Now, why do you think it is that the invitation to share a table is profoundly meaningful in every culture? Uh, So I'm going to ask you, challenge you, to share one meal with someone who you would not consider a Christ follower. And you won't need to adjust your schedule that much. Most of us eat 
three meals a day, that's 21 meals a week, I'm simply asking you to bring another person to your table for one of those. And maybe you're picturing a big elaborate dinner party. It doesn't need to be. It, it could be a breakfast. It could be a coffee and a donut. It's in the break room. It's in the staff teacher's lounge. It's, it's at the food court. Sit across the table from someone this week. And are you ready for this? Talk. <laughs> the table is like a great equalizer in relationships. When we eat, we discover each other's inherent humanity. And we share stories. And we share hopes and fears and disappointments. And people open up to each other. And we ourselves can open up, including perhaps, perhaps, if the time is right, share about our faith in Jesus. B, begin with prayer. Eat. E, with someone. L, listen. Listen to your friend and the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed a lot of our conversations are us talking or waiting for our opportunity to talk? And you ever had a visit with someone and you go away thinking, they don't know me any more than when we met three hours ago. Uh, a good listener these days is countercultural when someone is listened to. And maybe it means also learning to ask some great questions. They will feel known and seen. They will feel loved. And so what are some things you should be listening for? I would say you should be listening for turmoil and transition, turmoil, um, health troubles, financial issues, relational difficulties, parenting crisis, job anxieties. You're listening for these things. They are opportunities to minister, to love, maybe even pray for if they're willing. You're also listening for transition, a new job, a new baby, kids leaving for college, aging parents, a raise, a new house, turning 50. These are cues of receptivity, an opportunity to offer prayer, maybe, to lend support, to be a friend. You ever hear a guy, Bob Goff? Here's, here's what Bob Goff says. Catch people on the bounce. When they mess up, reach out to them with love and acceptance the way Jesus did. When they hit hard, run to them with arms wide open to hug them even harder. God wants to be with them when they mess up, and he wants us to participate. And secondly, listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, if you listen, he'll tell you when to speak. He'll tell you when to shut up. Uh, when to make a phone call, because someone has just been on your heart all day. Um, when to ask someone about a spouse who's passed away long ago, but the Holy Spirit says, you know, he's urging you. So you say, are you missing your husband these days? You know, people think evangelism is all talking. It's a monologue. It's a soapbox. I think it's, it's much about listening, listening to God, listening to your friend. B, begin with prayer. E, eat with someone. L, listen to your friend and the Holy Spirit. Second L, love. Look for practical ways to love people. No agenda, no expectation, no uh, expectation of reciprocation. Just love because Jesus loved first. Here, again, Bob Goff says, loving people doesn't mean we need to control their conduct. There's a big difference between the two. Loving people means caring without an agenda. 
As soon as we have an agenda, it's not love anymore. Serve them, help them, encourage them, affirm them, gift them. There's no shortage of ideas and ways that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus and demonstrate love in a practical and a tangible way. You know, imagine a world where people were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how well we loved. Um, imagine a world where unbelievers were anxious to hire and work for and live with, uh, live next door to Christians because of how well we love. So B, begin with prayer. E, eat with someone. L, listen to your friend and the Holy Spirit. L, love. And S, story. Look for opportunities to share your story and God's story. Look, we can't talk people into Jesus. I don't believe he wants us to. He certainly doesn't need us to. But what if we simply talked about the things we love, right? People do that all the time. They talk about cars and music and food and sports. Uh, none of them keep track of how many times they talk about these things. We just we talk about what we love the most, and when we discover something great, we naturally want all those who we really care about in on it. So, you know, we should no more leave the sharing of Jesus to us professional Christians than we do anything else that we're really enthusiastic about. So you don't, you don't need to tell your full three-hour testimony, okay? It's snippets of how God is actively working in your life, how you, how you have hope and joy and peace that defies logic. See if you can connect your story to the gospel story, a God who is redeeming all things, um, who wants to rescue people, who has a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope and a future. See if you can connect God's story to their story about how, how you see God pursuing them, about how their life circumstances may in fact be the providence of God in their life. Tell the story. B, begin with prayer. E, eat with someone. L, listen to your friend and the Holy Spirit. L, love practically. S, Tell the story, your story and God's story. You know, like the video said this morning, we have churches full of people who love Jesus. Instead, though, not instead, but in addition to, we need to love what Jesus loved. And he loves the world. And if we don't reach out, we are in effect saying, to the rest of the world, and pardon my frankness, we're saying, go to hell. Charles Spurgeon used to say, he was an old-timey preacher and evangelist, he said, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. I'm challenged by that. And I've, I've let go of this idea that I, I need to be... Um, a gifted evangelist. I have gifts. It's not in my top three. But I can do this. I can live a questionable life. 
I can listen to the Holy Spirit. I can eat with people. I can tell my story and God's story. I can do this. I'd like us to respond with a couple songs. And um, I'm going to be the first to sort of demonstrate a practical, tangible, tactile response. I'm going to start by writing the name of somebody I'm going to faithfully pray for. And then as a way to recognize that, celebrate it, I'm going to hang a bell. And you can hang it on one of those ribbons, take a, take a, a paper clip through the bell, goes in one of the ribbons, or if you're tall enough, put it right on the fishing wire at the top. And I would love throughout this series if we would just be able to celebrate, fill up this presentation of bells, recognizing uh, the ways that we have lived out this incarnational life. We don't have to draw big attention to it before the service. Next week, you can say, I, you know, I ate with somebody, shared my story. I'm going to hang a bell. It can happen during uh, worship. Um, but maybe you would respond with me this morning during these next two songs of somebody you're praying for. It can begin with that. Two simple things that you can do even this week is um, take a handful of these fall roundup. You can be assured that that Sunday is going to be short and fun. There'll be a simple gospel presentation. We've also have these just little business cards, little generic invites to our church. Take a handful of those, keep them in your car, in your wallet. If, if the opportunity presents itself, uh, you have a little invitation here. Um, Chris prayed before that, that there would just be no spirit of condemnation this morning. Uh, God, if there's any sense of guilt, just remove it in Jesus' name. This is about an abundant life that we just naturally want to communicate springs out naturally and so I just I just pray there's no condemnation feeling you haven't done enough that's not what this is about but I, I want to keep this on our front burner for the next two months that we would um, celebrate baby steps seeds planted gospel stories not just salvation stories but just steps towards Jesus so we're going to keep coming back to this idea of incarnating our faith. You know, when I first got here, this is what I really wanted to talk about. And I, I believe there were some other pressing things, governance things and, and guest services and that sort of stuff. And, but this is what really gets me up in the morning is the idea of sharing our faith with Southlake. That's the... I mean, if we're not about that, what are, what are we doing? What are we doing? Um, this is our mission, folks, and it's exciting. And wait till you see what happens as more new Christians come and what it does to the spirit of our church and the momentum of our church and the, just the excitement. It's, it's going to be a good season for New Market Alliance Church. So... Steve Robinson, 
It might be a good season for Stony Plain Alliance Church too. Who knows? But what I'm concerned about, I want to thank you folks for coming to church, but maybe more so than any Sunday, I'm going to challenge you. Let's now go be the church. Amen? Amen. You're a loved people. God bless you.